0: Everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast, where we help you connect with the past through food. My name is James, I'm your host, and today is episode 85. So, today I have a truly disgusting treat for all of you. Before we dig into that, I wanted to thank you all for finding the show and for listening. If you like what you hear today, make sure you leave an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help grow the show. Today, we have Andreas Arens on the podcast, all the way from Sweden, to talk about the Disgusting Food Museum. And this is a fascinating conversation that really challenged my idea of what makes something disgusting. Here's Andreas. Yeah, let's go ahead and, and dive in. Again, super grateful that you are coming on the show today. Let's start by having you introduce yourself.
1: I am Andreas Sorens, the museum director and one of the founders of the Disgusting Food Museum in Malmö, Sweden.
0: Awesome. So I was doing some searches uh, lately for food museums. There's a lot of interesting food museums out there. And I came mm-hmm. across the Disgusting Food Museum and I was very intrigued. Tell me, how did the Disgusting Food Museum get its start?
1: So it started with my co-founder, Samuel, who read an article in The Guardian about the fact that what we can do as individuals to really change our carbon footprint is to uh, reduce our meat consumption. So we can do that by just yes, going vegan, vegetarian. We can also go for lab-grown meat or uh, go for more for insects and, and so on. Um, so that was kind of the, the start of it all. So he had this thought for a few years. Uh, we had been friends for going on, on 10 years by now. And I had recently sold my previous company and wanted to do something fun, so uh, we started talking about if we could do something fun together. And uh, he came to, um, he, he mentioned it. Uh, he had this idea for it. He, he just had started to kind of scratch the surface and uh, did a little bit of <clears throat> a little bit of, of lists of, of things that we could include, but that's that's about it. Not really that much further. So I really loved it right away. I really loved the idea of of doing something that could be good for the environment, uh, could be fun, educational, and really a good experience for people. So uh, we decided to take it from uh, that initial idea into a fully formed museum concept together.
0: I love that. I love this idea of sustainability, right? And we're moving forward in, in a future where sustainability is becoming more and more of a hot topic. It's very polarizing. And, uh, and what people don't appreciate about sustainability, I think is when it starts to impact the types of food they're able to have access to, you know, we all want to be able to have the same ground beef that we've been eating our whole life, but those practices of raising cattle, aren't you know, environmentally conscious, it it really increases nice. your carbon footprint quite a bit, right? So yeah,
1: and 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 they become worse over time. I mean, it depends depending on how old you are, but I mean, something that was okay uh, fifty years ago, seventy years ago, uh, with small farms uh, relatively close to where people were actually eating the meat, uh, it's not the same today. It's factory farming. It's been a huge consolidation of all the smaller farms into these gigantic factory farms where the animals never leave the factory farm. There is a huge amount of runoff from their, their feces and their, their urine going mm-hmm. into the water supply, going into, in, in I mean, in the U.S. case, for example, going into the Gulf of Mexico, where it created a dead zone floating around in the Gulf, uh, the size of Texas, killing everything mm-hmm. in this path. So it's it's not even the same meat as we had, you know, thirty years ago, fifty years ago, seventy years ago. It's it's a much worse meat uh, quality wise, but definitely environmentally wise as well.
0: Yeah, well, and I think you see that in at least here in the states, uh, where if you look at a, a chicken that was, uh, you know, raised free range on a farm versus one of those factory farmed uh, big name brands in the store. The the factory farmed chicken is almost three times the size of yeah the the you know how how it was uh 30, 40, 50 years ago. And because yeah. we want more bang for our buck. And chicken producers yeah. want more bang for their buck. And if they yeah. can produce larger and larger chickens then you know, they don't have to spend as much in raising it, but they get more meat at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, and I mean, that's one of the problems. Another problem is, is in the, the pork production where we have a massive overuse of antibiotics, mm-hmm. uh, potentially causing quite a lot of antibiotic resistant bacteria. So, I mean, if COVID-19 is a problem, just wait for antibiotic resistant bacteria taking over the world. That, that will make COVID-19 look like nothing.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Those super bugs uh, that are the result of our (laughs) demand for cheap meat, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I love this. I love this idea of a disgusting food museum, right? And I, so I'm someone I can be a little squeamish at times when I start to think (laughs) about some of the things that other cultures eat. And I, I was thinking about this, right? Cause I, I have traveled internationally and yeah. I've experienced different cultures and what they eat. And I've prepared some of the things that I eat and root beer is one that I keep coming back to because I yeah. love root beer. I think root beer is <laughs> amazingly refreshing. I have it in the fridge often. And you share root beer with other people around the world and they think it's one of the most disgusting things that they've ever put (laughs) in their mouth. Right. So this concept of disgusting food is just so incredibly subjective. Yeah. What causes a person to enjoy a food and another person to be
1: completely
0: disgusted by that same food?
1: Well, most of it is down to culture. Um, And I mean, there are a lot of things that we share that that most cultures like. So basic things like a piece of meat, a piece of vegetable, you know, things like that is usually not that polarizing. But when it comes to things that are uh, fermented, for example, that has a special ingredient like um, the sassafras that was used for root beer that was actually cancerogenic originally. uh, Things that cause a really special kind of flavor or something that's close to my heart, like salty licorice, for example. I absolutely love it, but there's only six countries in the world that likes it. And then there's 189 countries in the world that are wrong. Uh, (laughs) So, I mean, that's another thing that, that... It's exactly, that's my root beer, right? Like that's a very special kind of taste that you have to get used to. And it gets so ingrained in the culture that you're supposed to like certain things. If you grow up in the U S you are kind of supposed to like root beer. If you grow up in Sweden, you're supposed to like salty licorice. And if you don't, you're considered a bit weird. People look at Mm -hmm. you like, why, why don't you like that? That's everyone likes that. So it's a bit of peer pressure to really start liking things. Um, and then we just kind of, we inherit it from our parents. Uh, and a lot of these special flavors, the, the more extreme ones that, that do uh, differentiate us, uh, they are often associated with uh, preservation. Fermented foods, uh, preserved foods, pickled foods, and so on. Um, a lot of that is, is just basic preservation of food. Um, I mean, fermentation is a great preservation method or it was a great preservation method before we had fridges and freezers so Mm -hmm. it came by because of necessity um, and then it becomes a part of the culture it becomes a part of the tradition Uh, and I think that's why there are so many differences between different parts of the world Uh, and of course influences kind of spread throughout geographical areas so If you look at the Mediterranean, they have a lot of things in common. They have stinky cheeses, for example. They exist anywhere from from Spain to France to Italy. Um, If you look at fermented fish, we have quite a lot of that in Sweden, Norway, a bit in Finland. uh, But mostly Sweden and Norway, we are the champions of the stinky fishes up here. Mm -hmm. Um, So it does spread over borders as well. Um, We we do get influenced by each other.
0: Yeah, I love this. I love this idea of culture, right? Where what we grow up with is what we like. And yeah. I think you hit it on the head where you're talking about it it almost, you almost become an outcast in society if you don't yeah. like certain foods, you know, yeah. Americans love root beer. We drink root beer. The rest yeah. of the world is wrong, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. Exactly. It, yeah. So I, I think that's really interesting. And I, I think about, so I have, I have two kids. And I think about uh, when they are discovering different foods and how they'll say something is gross and how over time that piece of broccoli that they refuse to eat now they love. Yeah. Um, so is there, are are we able to overcome those barriers? Are we able to uh, gain an appreciation for foods that maybe we once hated?
1: I, I think we are. Uh, I, I think it is possible to do so. And I, I think some flavors are very uh, adult. Some things are you are, kind of have to have a, uh, a more a kind of experienced palate to be able to appreciate them. So maybe things like like broccoli and Brussels sprouts and, and things like that. And Brussels sprouts is a good example because um, it actually is not the same Brussels sprout. as I don't know how old you are, but I mean, in my age, the, the Brussels sprouts that I remember from my young age is not the same Brussels sprouts as we have today. It, it has changed. So the flavor itself has changed. So uh, it actually does taste better now than it did, you know, 30 <laughs> years ago. Uh, not just my palate. And then we have things that you really have to get used to. And and bitterness is usually one of those. So Mm -hmm. things that you associate with adulthood, like coffee and beer and wine, a lot of them have a lot of bitterness to them. Um, And you kind of, you have to drink them until, I would say kind of your body stops telling you no. Like your brain is telling you that this is bitter. Don't drink it, don't eat it. Because bitterness is usually associated with poisons in nature. A lot of Mm -hmm. natural poisons are bitter. So we are kind of um, environmentally conditioned into not eating and drinking bitter things. Uh, But I think what kind of happens is that if you keep on drinking coffee, if you keep on drinking beer, eventually you get used to it enough that you start liking it. Um, But very few people, I would say, drink a, a beer or a cup of coffee for the first time in their life and go, yes, this is great. Uh, It's more like you are forced by culture to to start doing those things because it's expected of you as an adult. Uh, You see everyone else doing it, so I have to do it as well. And then eventually you start liking it.
0: Yeah, I love that. I, I think when I'm thinking about different cultures and different foods out there, Uh, I'm a big textural eater. So a lot of times I'll decide that a food is disgusting because the texture doesn't agree with me. Either it's too, too crunchy or it's too soft. Uh, And I I think one culture that really is challenging for me with food is uh, Chinese food. And in in China as well yes at both i mean they they have a range of textures and 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 they feel that a good meal is comprised of chewy and soft and you know so they they want to incorporate everything the tendons uh and the uh the awful like the the organ meats and different things that maybe i wouldn't eat in my culture um so if if i'm understanding right if I want to gain an appreciation for a disgusting food, then I need to gain an appreciation for the culture, but not just studying it, but maybe more immersive to where I feel that that pressure. This is just what I do now. I, I eat this because it's my culture
1: now. I think what you first have to do is just kind of having an open mind because what we we all do, this is not just specific countries or whatever, what we all do is we don't want to push our limits. Um, So, and then disgust is there to protect us from potentially dangerous food and poisonous foods. Uh, So it's an evolutionary thing that exists in every single culture around the world. Um, So we have to push ourselves to overcome the boundaries of disgust. Um, So disgusting things to us is usually things that uh, or have a really strange sm- uh, smell or taste or or texture, as you say, um, that's what disgusts us because we're not used to them. And since we're not used to them, we don't know if they're safe to eat or not. So that's what we kind of have to mentally overcome. We have to realize that, okay, uh, this really gooey thing, um, it's disgusting to me because I'm not used to it. It's not disgusting to me because it's disgusting. It's just because I'm not used to it. So if I train, if I get used to it, and if I have an open mind when I do so, if I don't think, oh, this is so disgusting, I'm gonna, but I'm going to do it anyway. If I instead go, okay, I haven't learned to appreciate this yet, but I'm going to practice and I'm, I'm going to keep an open mind. And then you, you might not um, appreciate it ever. And, and that's okay too. You don't have to love everything. But if you at least try with an open mind, I think it's a lot easier. Yeah, I
0: think that's a very important point that you bring up that the open mind, right? Yeah. If so down the street from me, we have a, uh, a restaurant that serves uh, food from El Salvador and one Mm -hmm. of the items on their menu, they sell crickets (laughs) and they actually cook those up and, and they serve them. And, you know, I, I look on Yelp and I'm looking at reviews and I see pictures of these bugs and I just get so grossed out. And immediately I think there is no way that I am ever going to order that at that restaurant. And already I've closed my mind off to what might be, I might love these things. I don't know, yeah yeah. but already I've told myself it's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) well
1: that's that's it okay so let me tell you about the the tasting bar in the disgusting food museum uh we have 20 different things that people can try there about 20 different things it changes a little bit day to day but Mm -hmm. the very first thing that people try because it's the easiest is actually crickets uh so that's that's definitely obstacle number one is crickets uh and every single person tries this goes oh that's okay that that doesn't really taste anything tastes a bit like hard bread, like cereal. Mm -hmm. And of course, if they cook them up there, they add some spices and then it's going to taste even better. So it's, that's one of the things that we teach our visitors to try. You know, we, we show them that this is not really that bad. This is the first thing. This is the absolutely simplest thing. And as soon as you tell people that they go, "Oh, Oh, okay. So I guess I'll try it because this is not that bad. Um, and yeah, so I mean, it, as you say, when you, when you tell yourself this is disgusting, you do close your mind to it and you will not, not try it if you do. But if you instead realize that there's about uh, two billion people in the world that eat insects regularly, everything from, from South America to Asia to Africa, some people in, in Australia and so on, uh, that it's a lot of people that eat insects. Um, and it's actually a super good protein source it contains between 60 and 70% protein, produces 96% or so less uh, percent, uh, greenhouse gases, uses less land, less uh, water juice. They don't have the uh, central nervous system required to feel pain. So compared to other animals that we do eat, they don't actually experience pain in the same way at all. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, I would say it's better in absolutely every single way. We just have to get used to them. That's it. Yeah, and I
0: think uh, it it's definitely inspired me to have more of an open mind. And I think next time I go into this restaurant, I might try it. Who knows? Yeah, I
1: think <laughs> you should. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I I gotta say I'm a little nervous if the first thing you have uh, museum goers that you have them taste is a cricket. What are the so let's, so we've, we've talked about the cricket being maybe the most tame uh, yeah. piece in the in the museum that, that I could try if I were to show up. Uh, yeah. What is maybe the most extreme?
1: So the two most extreme things are right at the end of the visit. Um, so one of them is uh, Silstumming, Swedish fermented herring. That is the thing that causes the most people to vomit. We've had 112 vomits since we opened two and a half years ago. <laughs> um, so we, we do have a vomit counter and, and the number of days since the last vomit. And the tickets are actually vomit bags. So um, they, they do oh, have clever. a vomit bag available just yes in, yes in case. Um, so about half of the vomits, um, something like, yeah, almost 60 of the vomits are, are because of are still so starting. Um, and the other thing that we get quite a lot of, of strong reactions to is an incredibly salty licorice from Iceland that I love. But that's the thing that the most people spit out. That's right after the Silsterming and to Nordic visitors and Dutch people, it's an amazing dessert after everything else. For the rest of the world, it's pretty much the worst thing. So that's the thing that the most people actually spit out. Mm-hmm. So, well, yeah, those are pretty extreme.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting that a, a licorice, something that, again, uh, uh, what you might view as absolutely amazing that most yeah. people would not want to have in their mouth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, I'm a salt licorice connoisseur. I've, I've had salt licorice from all over the, all the countries that produce it, oh, only six, unfortunately, but uh, every single one uh, that I can find, I, I try. I absolutely love it. And actually, when it comes to Swedish visitors, if they come up to the tasting bar and say, oh, I don't want to try anything at all. I, I don't feel like eating anything. And we usually ask them, like, do you want the salt decoration? And they go, yeah, yeah that's fine. Right. That I can do. That's fine. Uh, nothing else, but that's fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, so you you mentioned this tasting bar. Um, if yeah. I were to come to the museum, what what might I experience on a daily basis there?
1: Oh, uh, The things that you're used to, you mean?
0: Yeah. So if if I were to if I were to show up at the museum, what mm-hmm. what would a typical visit entail? What what would I experience by by showing up?
1: Oh, yeah. So the first thing you you get your your vomit bag, and then you move on to our photo booth, where we uh, spray you with a uh, disgusting smell. Uh, it's actually kind of a medley of four different disgusting things, and then take your photo at the same time, so you get that kind of disgust <laughs> face. Um, and then you go through the exhibit items, uh, look at them, smell a couple of them, and then you finish in the tasting bar. We have those twenty different things to try, and we do have your beloved root beer there, actually. Uh, I'm I'm happy to tell you that it's the only thing that no one has ever vomited from. Everything else in the tasting bar has caused someone to vomit, but it was really close about a month ago. We had a woman that thought it was the absolute (laughs) worst thing out of everything, and she was so close with her vomit bag. She had it up her mouth and like really was super close to vomiting, but but made it.
0: That is so fascinating to me. (laughs) It's so... (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think uh, it really does help me to frame food in a different, in, in a different mindset. Right. Because I, I truly believe that root beer, like there is no substitute. There's nothing better than (laughs) an amazing root beer. I just, I love it. Um, Especially if you do like a root beer float, you add some vanilla ice cream to it and it gets nice and creamy. That's, I mean, it's, it's the best. Um, But I guess the other cultures would talk about crickets or uh, fermented herring the same way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like when we mention to to visitors who who really don't like the the root beer and we tell them, oh, Americans like uh, root beer float, they put ice cream in it. And they're like, they do what? (laughs) it's like okay it was bad enough already why do they put ice cream in it (laughs) it's
0: a good way to ruin ice cream
1: (laughs) yeah exactly exactly
0: (laughs) oh that's great so do you have anything are there any items on the tasting uh the the tasting part of of the experience where uh people are most commonly surprised by like oh well that wasn't so bad
1: Yeah, I would say probably the durian fruit from Southeast Asia. Um, It it smells incredibly bad, but the taste is almost like a a combination of mango and onion. Uh, And actually, uh, quite often we let people, people smell it after they eat it as well. And as soon as you've tasted it, almost everyone can smell kind of a good smell in the same jar that they were just revolted by. Because Mm -hmm. there are two kinds of of parts to the odor. There is a sweet, uh, fruity smell. And there is a pungent, like rotten onion smell. Uh, So once you have tasted it, you can also identify the sweet, fruity part of the smell. Um, But it is actually also one of the most vomited things. I think it's number three or four most vomited out of (laughs) all the things. So most people are pleasantly surprised. Some people really hate it. Oh.
0: Yeah, that's one that I, have so I go to a lot of Asian markets Uh, here in town. We have a couple of them and I always see them sitting there and I'm, yeah, I almost want to try it just to, <laughs> to see, but I, you know, I, I hear they smell terrible and I'm not sure I want to bring that in
1: the house. So I don't know. <laughs> You, you get used to it. Uh, for me, I've eaten it so many times now. So I really like the smell. For me, it's just, I get that Pavlovian response where my saliva starts going when I smell durian. I, I love it. It's so, oh. so good.
0: I love that. I love that. So you mentioned that that's one of the three or four most vomited. What are the top yeah. one and two?
1: Number one is the stomach, the fermented herring. And number two is fermented shark from Iceland called Halkalt. Uh, those are I mean fermented fish is is really hard for a lot of people
0: yeah I've heard uh, so I've watched I've watched the Anthony Bourdain special where he eats the fermented shark uh, and I've I've heard it described as uh, chewing through a urine soaked mattress so I would imagine that if that's how it's being described, <laughs> that it must be challenging.
1: I would say he, he, he's wrong there. I, I don't think it's that bad. I usually describe it as a cod at a really bad roadside diner that you wish you had had passed. The only problem is that it smells kind of like the urinal in the same place that hasn't been cleaned in a couple of months. <laughs> uh, so the, the smell is terrible. And the cause, the reason for that is that sharks, they don't have a urinary tract. They urinate through the skin. So the flesh is full of urine. So mm-hmm. you have to ferment it to break down the urine. And then you get that kind of old urine, kind of ammonia smell. Uh, so that is the worst part of it. The, the taste is not really that bad.
0: So. It may be similar than to like a durian fruit, where the smell is just horrendous, but the flavor yeah. surprises you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that is a. I I'm I'm curious if I would have the guts to try that. Is there anything on the tasting menu that you will not try?
1: Not on the tasting menu. I, I've tried everything there many, many times. Except for, I mean, I've tried the still swimming in the shark, but I've only tried each of them once because I'm violently allergic to fish. So when I tried mm-hmm. it, I had to go to the hospital afterwards. Uh, everything else I've tried hundreds of times and it's not a big problem at all. Uh, we do have some things in the in the exhibit that are not generally tasted that I have also tried. So I've tried the casumazzo, the maggot cheese from Sardinia with living maggots. Uh, That was actually quite good, although it was a bit scary because they can jump up to 15 centimeters. And uh, (laughs) worst case, they can attach to your eyeball and give you retinal attachment. Uh, They can also survive in your stomach uh, and bore through your intestines. You have to make sure to chew it really well. Um, I've tried the the baby mouse wine where you put 200 newborn baby mice in some rice wine. That was absolutely horrendous. Um, and Gomutra from India, which is basically yes cow urine, that was absolutely horrendous too uh but my only rule is the things that I will not try is feces, um animal suffering, so living fish and things like that, uh and um anything that could be toxic or, or like make me really, really sick. Everything else I try
0: yeah, that's uh. That's a really interesting list of things that are absolutely, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking through this just in shock and awe as you're rattling off, like who, I just wonder sometimes what people were thinking, like who had the idea to put a bunch of mice in uh, rice wine and let that ferment right. and get funky and then consume it. Like to me, that doesn't seem like a good idea. But again, I guess culturally, (laughs) others would have a different opinion. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I, I I think a lot of them, some of them I know, some of them I think came about out of, of lack of food. So basically something like a molded cheese, like a roquefort or a gorgonzola or something like that, a blue cheese, most likely came by because of a young shepherd who forgot some cheese in a cave. And then when it came back again, it had molded and he didn't, didn't have any other cheese. So he tried it and it was good. Uh, almost all of these kind of strange fermented things Came about out of survival in some way, uh, having no other food, having your last tofu started rotting, and that was basically stinky, stinky tofu started. Um, you know, trying out fermenting the shark to see how it how you can make it edible and things like that. Uh, quite often, it was just you you don't have a choice because this is all you have. Uh, the baby mouse wine, I haven't really found any origins. But I wouldn't be surprised if it would be something like um, there was, you know, accidentally a baby mouse fell into my rice wine. Uh, I wanted to get drunk, so I tried it and all my liver problems became better afterwards. So I guess it's a medicine now. I mean, it it could have been something like that. Who knows? Uh, Or it was someone who just kind of came up with it. Uh, In that case, I I haven't found any, you know, uh, actual explanation or, or any guess as to why it happened. Um, but I think it's quite likely that something like that was the cause of it. Yeah, I
0: think that's, I think that's humbling in a lot of ways, right? Where, yeah, in in today's world, we we live very privileged lives compared to yeah. our, our ancestors. Where, yeah, uh, if I want a burger, I can drive down the street and get one for a buck, and yeah, uh, it's not hard to obtain food, but then we forget, right, that there are other cultures where even today it's starvation and hardship and famine and that they do make the best of what they have. And sometimes that means that they're going to eat something that I might scoff at and think, oh, there's no way I would eat that when really for them, maybe they don't want to eat it either, but that's what they have. (laughs) And that's what they're going to make do with.
1: Uh, Exactly. And I I think a lot of these dishes that we have in the exhibit, they were created before the US even existed, right? Mm -hmm. Before Mm -hmm. uh, Europeans came to the North America at all, some of these dishes were created. So we go back hundreds and hundreds of years in many cases, and and people didn't have a choice. They didn't have a fridge to put their, their fish in, so they had to ferment it. Uh, they, they didn't have any other way to preserve food. And over time, things become a part of the national identity. It becomes a part of who you are. And I think that's one of the reasons why we kind of have to learn to like some of these things, uh, some of these foods from our own culture, because it becomes a part of, of being Swedish, of being American, of being Chinese, uh, to eat these kinds of things. And it's, it's very closely linked to our national identity and our personal identity.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. And I, I even think I, I look at foods that we eat in our, uh, my family, uh, you know, likes and dislikes that we have that unify us as family members that are very yeah. different from other families in the same neighborhood and same culture. And, yeah. and yeah, I just, I, I love this concept and it's been a fascinating discussion today on culture and food and how food unites us and disgusting food, quote unquote, disgusting food, uh, I think unites us more closely than some of those more common foods that everyone has around the world. Yeah, definitely. Well, Andreas, i Really appreciate the conversation. I've learned a lot. My eyes have been opened. You have me considering trying crickets, which Do I it. think has been huge. <laughs> so if I want to find out more about the museum, what what avenues can I go? Where where can I find out more?
1: You can go to discussingfoodmuseum.com or you can follow us on Facebook or Instagram.
0: Awesome. And I'll make sure that, again, we link to all of that in the description. So uh, make sure that you check all of that out. Uh, again, I really appreciate the conversation today. It's It's been fun. Thank you. It was fun talking to you as well. Special thanks to Andreas for coming on the show today. I love the interesting conversation on culture and how that quote-unquote disgusting food may just be the thing that unifies large groups of people around the world culturally. As we look to the future of food, and how to feed an ever-growing global population, sustainability is going to become a more pressing topic. And I love that our conversation went that direction because, again, it challenged my idea of (laughs) moving past some of my own notions about food and moving towards a sustainable mindset. And that might mean in the future that we end up eating something that we aren't accustomed to like crickets. And, you know, when you look at crickets, they're a very sustainable food source, they're healthy, they're high in protein, and already consumed by large segments of the global population. My culture of origin doesn't eat fermented fish, salted licorice, or crickets. However, that doesn't mean these things are disgusting. As we seek to appreciate the cultures around us, We should probably challenge ourselves to keep an open mind as we tentatively explore a global cuisine that is more accessible than ever before. So if you want to learn more about the Disgusting Food Museum, there are links in the description. Make sure you check those out. And I also am including a link where you can purchase the dreaded salt licorice. And I gotta say, it was... I'm not going to say disgusting. I'm going to say challenging. (laughs) I could not get through it. So had to throw that one out. But (laughs) that's all I have for this week. Make sure you leave a review if you enjoyed the show. Until
1: next week.